you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So for the next uh, two weeks, we're going to step away from uh, Genesis and look here. We'll be here for both weeks in 1 Corinthians 13, and in two weeks, Pastor Ken will return, and he's here, but he'll return to the pulpit and uh, pick back up in, in Genesis. So uh, if you want to book an Airbnb for next week so you don't have to be here to endure this again, uh, that's okay, but please just wait till after the sermon to get your phone out to book it. It'll... It won't hurt my feelings as bad if I don't see it. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm kidding. But let's, uh, let's look together at 1 Corinthians 13. In a moment, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. All right? But let me set, set it up this way. In 1967, the Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love. In 1984, Tina Turner asked, What's love got to do with it? In 1985, the rock group Heart wrote a song called, What About Love? In 1992, Whitney Houston sang, I Will Always Love You. Something about that song, like when you, when you hear that, if like you need to try to sing it, I won't do that to you. Um, in 2012, their hit debut album, The Lumineers, one of their hit songs was Stubborn Love. We talk much of love in our culture. Beyond songs, there is an abundance of sayings about love. I just did a quick search for wall art. You know, that's popular, wall art, and have words on your wall. And uh, so I did a quick search just for wall art that contained the word love. Here were some of the top hits. Love yourself first. I love you more than coffee. That's actually at my house. That means a lot, too. Uh, (laughs) Live well. Laugh often love much. Let the beauty of your love be what you do. Do what you love. And here's one that gets to the heart of all of our cultural talk of love. Love and let be. And what is clear is that love is something that we talk about often. Something that we value. Yet culturally, I don't think it's something that is very well defined. If we asked a bunch of different people, maybe even in this room, what it is, we'd get a whole lot of different answers. But there's good news, right? And the good news is that the author of love, the God who is love, 1 John 4, 8, has revealed to us what love is in his word. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. Now, even in this confusion, our culture wants to invert that and say love is God. Yet, it's God who is love. It's God who authors love. It's God who defines love. So however our whims are, we don't get to define love, but instead, the author defines it. And so important is this theme of love that Jesus said in John 13, 35, the following, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think we can just see from that how important this is. That Jesus is saying this is a defining mark that you belong to me. It's your love for one another. So two things. First, Love is supposed to mark the life of the church. Understand this, that we proclaim a glorious gospel, do we not? We just sang of it here together, that we proclaim glorious good news, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Yet what Jesus is saying in John 13 is that this love, this glorious gospel that we proclaim, this good news is to bear fruit in our lives. It's not just to be something that we say with our mouths, but it's to be something that shows up in our lives, that that, that overflows into our lives and bears fruit in our lives. That our lives together should illustrate the words that we speak. You've heard me use the illustration before, but but if we proclaim these, these good news, it's like the words on the page, and then our lives together are to be something of an illustration to what those words are proclaiming. And so often in the life of the church, we proclaim the right words, but our illustrations just don't match the good news that we proclaim. And so here 
In 1 Corinthians, we're going to see what that looks like. But let me say one more thing. I said two things about this. Here's the second thing. If our lives are to, are to proclaim this, the second thing is that our current moment that God has placed us in is desperate for the gospel in his providence, this moment that he's placed us in that we live in right now, this moment, our culture, those around us, our world is desperate for the gospel and they're desperate to see the fruit of the gospel in our lives. Just think about this. That everywhere you look, and you don't have to look far, what do we see? We see division. We see harshness. We see hatred. We see it in the midst of politics, a pandemic, and cultural tensions. Yet we have this unique privilege as the church to be what Francis Schaeffer called the final apologetic for the gospel, to, to give witness to the world of what this great good news that we proclaim looks like. So, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the places in Scripture that tells us what this love looks like. It tells us when Jesus says that they will know you by this, your love for one another, 1 Corinthians 13 actually fills out for us what this looks like. The Bible doesn't leave us to ourselves to define it ourselves. It doesn't tell culture to define it for us, but, but it tells us what love looks like. Now, I love, no pun intended, 1 Corinthians 13. It's often referred to as the love chapter, right? It's quoted in weddings. I'm sure it was read in my wedding. I read it in most weddings that I, that I uh, have the privilege to preside over. Yet, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about love between a husband and wife. 1 Corinthians 13 is about love in the life of the church. Listen to what Phil Riken writes in his book that I would really commend to you on this chapter, Loving the Way Jesus Does. He says this, The love chapter, meaning 1 Corinthians 13, is not for lovers primarily, but for all the loveless people in the church who think that their way of talking about God or worshiping God or serving God or giving to God is better than everyone else's. That's good. See, we need more than pithy, tweetable, bumper sticker-sized statements about love. We need a robust truth. In the next two weeks, we're going to look at this passage and, by God's grace, learn more of what it means to love one another, this love that Jesus spoke of. So turn your attention to your Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll read verses 1 through 8 of that chapter together. This is God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, and it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on the reading of your word and now the preaching of it. Father, give me grace to, uh, to rightly divide and expound your word. Give me grace to not say anything, that, that, to refrain from saying anything that would not be helpful, but to only say things that would bring grace to us as a church. Father, we pray and we confess that as we come to your word that we're in need. We're in need of it, of truth, of its instruction, of its rebuke, of its correction, of its encouragement. Father, we're in need of, of ears to be able to hear this morning. Father, we're in, we're in need of, of, of attention spans that, that aren't easily distracted. Father, we're in need of, of your spirit to impress it upon our hearts so that it doesn't just evaporate as soon as we leave this room or start discussing lunch plans or what's coming up this week. Father, it's our prayers that we would hear it, that we'd believe it, that it would take root and that it would bear fruit in our lives and that it would be for your glory and toward the good of those around us because as we've said, we need it 
And those around us need the testimony of the church, both in word and deed. So bring about your words, good work for your glory and our good. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I understand that we're dropping in here in the middle of 1 Corinthians, or really toward the end of 1 Corinthians, and verse 13, and there's a lot that's going on, and I don't want to just ignore the context. What we know, though, is that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and this is a church that certainly is in need of love. That There is a lack of love going on within the life of the church. So I'll give you just a quick outline of what's going on in the book. Not the whole book, but really where we see uh, this lacking of love in the life of the church. I believe there's a slide that will have this outline on there if you want it. Let's just walk through a couple of things. In chapters 1 through 3, what do we see? Well, we see divisions and factions going on in the church. If you read those first few chapters, uh, you can see Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 10, 11, and 12, uh, he says this. He says, I appeal to you that there be no divisions among you, for it has been reported to me that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so what's going on is that within the church, there are factions. There are those who are arguing, well, I was baptized by this one. I was baptized by this one. Paul says in there, to my knowledge, by God's grace, thankfully, I didn't baptize any of you. Uh, because they're even arguing about that. And, and they're, there's, they're practicing this one-upmanship within the church, and they're breaking out into factions. I'm of this camp. I'm of this tribe. And then there's the ultimate Jesus juke right there in the middle of it where some say, well, I'm of Christ, right? And that's what Paul's talking about, that, that even so much so you're trying to outdo one another that you're appealing even to Christ himself. And so there's factions. There's divisions within the church. And then when we get to chapter 5, we see there is gross immorality in the church, and Paul uses a term there that he'll use here in this chapter, in chapter 13. He says this, he says, there's, there's immorality among you that even the world, the pagans, would not tolerate. I mean, he says, even the world is looking at the church and saying, that's gross, that's wrong, like, what's going on there is wrong. And he says, and you're arrogant about it. That's what he says in chapter 5, verse 2. He says, you're arrogant about it, and you ought to mourn. And so there's immorality in the church, and there's toleration of immorality, which is unloving. We'll come to that next week. And then uh, in chapter 6, there's just this see you in court, that they're actually suing one another in the church and taking one another to court, and Paul's addressing that. And then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he deals with weak consciousness. And uh, there is division within the church about Christian liberty, as there often is. We see in uh, verses 11 through 12 of chapter 8, he says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. So those who don't have the weak conscience, he's saying, you're destroying those with weak consciences. And then he says this, The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. He's saying you're sinning against one another, so much so in sinning against Christ himself. All right, and then in chapter 11, I've just got it titled, Left Out. That the practice of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you celebrate when you come together. And then this is the ultimate rebuke from an apostle. Go and read it later. He's saying, actually, you're worse off for gathering together. Like, that's pretty bad. Like, you'd just be better if you didn't even get together and practice it the way you're doing it. And if you read on in there, what they're doing is they're leaving each other out. They're leaving each other out. More than likely what's happening is the wealthier members in the church are able, they're not working as late into the day. They're gathering and they're going ahead and enjoying the meal together and, and observing the Lord's Supper. And then those who are poorer, who are working later in the day, are getting there later and they're getting sat at the kids' table, so to speak. All right? They're getting sat off to the side and they're getting leftovers. Now, if you don't think that will drive some division in the church, nothing will, right? So we're talking about major divisions within the church. And then chapters 12 through 14, which this chapter 13 finds itself in the middle of, what's going on there is there's people that are being, felt, uh, being led to be felt like second-class Christians, right, because of the gifts that they have. And so there's this inordinate focus on the gifts and which gifts are, are better, and it's bringing division in the church, and it's leading some in the church to feel like, well, I'm just a subpar JV, second-class Christian. So Paul brings in here in chapter 13... Talking about love. If you look at the last verse of chapter 12, where this little section starts, he says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. 
Now, we don't have time uh, in these two sermons to really dive into uh, debates about the gifts, cessationism, continuationism. The other elders in the church will be glad to talk to you about that afterwards and clear up any questions that you have, right? They've already volunteered. That's, that's not really true, but, but they would love to do that, right? So I'll, I'll give you their emails if you want them. You just let me know. Um, but what we're really going to focus on is, is what we can see is that the implications that are going on here that Paul's addressing in this specific context overflow out into the life of the church throughout the whole life of the church, right? That this call to love one another. And so what I want you to see is first in verses one through three is he's talking about the necessity of love. He's talking about the necessity of love. And really what is interesting is that in these first three verses is that he addresses, I'm not trying to force anything here on the text, but I really see he's addressing head, heart, and hands, right? And a lot of Christians will, will lean more one way or the other, but I'll show you what I mean, okay? So look at what he says first. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And, and really here, I would say he's addressing the heart people, right? The people uh, who really focus on piety and, and, and prayer and worship and they're passionate in their faith. Uh, and he's, he's talking about this. A lot of scholars will say that this, this tongues of angel, maybe it's a prayer language. It's a language that would be used in worship. We'll see later as Paul addresses it in 14 that he says there must be interpretation for it. And so, again, we don't have time to, to get into debates of that. But he really seems to be addressing that area of life, that area of worship, of personal piety. And he, and so we'll come back to how he does that. Now look at the next verse, verse 2. He says, and if I have prophetic powers, Right? If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains. So here he really seems to be addressing the head people, right? Those who, are, who focus more on intellectual things. They love, the, they love Bible study. They love theology. They love to debate these things, to talk about these things. They love to understand these things and, and discuss them. And, and they're probably great at teaching in the church. And so there we have kind of the heart people in verse 1. We have the, the, the head people, the studiers in verse 2. And then here in verse 3, he seems to really be addressing the hands people, right? The people who just like, let's just get busy and do something, okay? So look at, look at verse 3. Look at what he says there. He says, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, right? These are people who are out, they're doers. They're out doing things. If I give away what I have, even if I'd be willing to sacrifice my own body, right? So I think you can kind of see. Now, hopefully as Christians, there's, there's aspects of all this in our lives, right? That we do love God with all that we have and all that we are. We love him with our mind, our heart, and our, our, all that we have, and even in what we do. Uh, but Paul seems to address all these things, and what he says is striking. Because what he's saying is you can do these good things, and it be absolutely worthless, if love's not behind it, motivating it, and sustaining it, it means the word he uses repeated is nothing. Look what he says. First in verse 1, he doesn't use this word nothing, but he says, I am a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. I'm offering, I would summarize it this way, nothing. I'm offering nothing. Then in verse 2, when he says, if you, if you have this knowledge, you understand mysteries, he says but you have not love, I am nothing. I offer nothing. I am nothing. Then look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, if I give away all I have, I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. What he's saying is, is that even these things that we might would, that we'd admire, these things that we would commend, he says, if love is not what's behind it, motivating it, sustaining it, driving it, it's nothing. It's a really striking rebuke that Paul's laying out here. Remember, he's told them just prior to this, he says, there, I want to show you a more excellent way. And he's saying that, that love is going to be what's driving this. So there's this indictment. There should be conviction that goes with it. That the dividing issue that Paul's addressing is the gifts and the gifts have actually been given to the Holy Spirit for the benefit of the church, so that the church is built up. The church of Corinth is using it to divide themselves and to cause division within the church. 
D.A. Carson, in his book, Showing the Spirit, where he addresses really just these three verses, he makes this statement, I think it's helpful. He notes that they are bragging about the work of the Spirit in their lives. However, and I quote, there is not evidence of even the first work of the Spirit in their lives. That's convicting. They're bragging about this work of the Spirit in their lives, and he says in the way that they're doing it, lacks the evidence of even the first work of the Spirit. He means conversion. They don't even appear to be Christians by the way they're acting. So what he's saying here is he's saying, I, I, I offer nothing, I am nothing, and I gain nothing. Now, Paul has said something very um, helpful earlier in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about the divisions and factions within the church. And in, verse, in chapter 3, in verse 13, he's talking about those who are building the church, who are contributing to the church. And he uses these, these imageries, he uses these words of wood, hay, and stubble, and then gold, stone, fine things. Right? There seems to be a contrast that's going on there. And then in verse 13, this is how he picks up. He says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Day is capitalized in ESV because it has eschatological overtones to it, meaning end. In the end, when we stand before the Lord, it will be revealed, okay? Now let's go back. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive his reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as though through the fire. He's not saying you'll lose your salvation. He's saying there you'll be saved through the fire. But if, if what you've done is wood, hay, and stubble, he says it's going to be burned up. It's going to be revealed to have been nothing. Here's what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 13 when we look at 1 Corinthians 3. He's saying that apart from love, it all goes up in smoke. Just poof, and it's gone. So what we need within the church is love. But here's what, I wanna, here's what I wanna clarify at the very beginning. Friends, please listen to me, Christians, please listen to me. We cannot generate this love in and of ourselves. We just can't. First John 4.19 is so instructive. We love because he first loved us. See, this love that he's calling us to, that, that is going to be manifesting out of our lives, it is an overflow of the love that we've already been given. It's the overflow of the love that God has given us in Christ Jesus. You know, John's gospel, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That, that God loved, so he sent his son. We even see in Galatians 2.20 that, that it's love that drives Christ himself, right? For I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. It is his life that he loved and gave up for me. He loved me and gave his life up for me is what Paul says there. So we're seeing that, that it's love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that is driving this gospel that, we have, uh, that God has given to us in Christ, sent people to proclaim it to us out of his love for us. And we have recognized our need our sin and uh, our desperation for Christ and trusted in him for salvation. And now we've been made a part, as we read this morning and sang about, of the Father's family were adopted and now we're to take on the family ethic of love. And it's just overflowing out of the love that the Father has given to us. See, most of the talk today about love is all about acceptance. But the gospel tells us that, that God can't just accept us as we are because we're at odds with him. We're enemies of God. We have rebelled against him. We've sought to assert ourselves, to usurp his authority, to make ourselves our own gods and to rule our own lives. And guess what? It has landed us in nothing but a mess of sin, shame, and pain, and ultimately death and judgment. But God in his grace and mercy and his love, he didn't leave us just to eat the fruit of our rewards on our own. That is our reward. The wages of sin is death. But he sent Christ Jesus who came and lived the perfect life that we could not live, yet went to the cross. And this is how this dilemma is addressed in that same chapter in 1 John, verse 10, chapter 4. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to deal with our sins so that we could be accepted. 
He sent his son to live the perfect life that we could not live, yet went to the cross and bore the wrath that we deserved and exhausted the punishment and judgment that we deserved on our behalf so that if we look to him in faith, the wrath was set on Christ and we get the blessing that Christ earned for us. Romans says that God is both just, he doesn't just sweep things under the rug, he deals with our sin and justifier. He he declares us as just in Christ Jesus. So does God accept us? Yes, but not just as we are. We we are unacceptable apart from Christ. And it is in that that we've been brought into the family and received this love, that this love now overflows out of our life into the lives of others. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never recognized that and we're talking about love and and you're thinking, man, I I wish there was somebody in my life who who loved me with a love that would be undying, never-ending, that I could count on, that I could rest in. I feel like everywhere I've looked, I've been met with failure or or death has parted us, whatever it is. Can I tell you, there's only one love that will truly sustain you. It's a love from God in Christ Jesus. Cling to that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be reminded of that and refreshed in that. That if this love is to work out into our lives, it has got to be rooted and founded and resting on the love that God has given us. So Paul begins this section by saying that we can do lots of good things that will be commended in the eyes of others, but if love is not what drives it and is behind it, then it's nothing. And we may fool a lot of people around us, but we don't fool God. And the last day, it'll all be revealed for what it really is. Now, Let's look at verse 4. Because it's here in verse 4 that he really begins to define what this love is. What it looks like as it works out in the life of the church. And he gives us two things. He says, love is patient and love is kind. And then he'll turn and he'll go at it from a negative angle and tell us what love is not. But here's what it is, he says. He says it's patient. When we think about this word patience, right? we, we think about long-suffering, endurance, steadfastness. We we certainly think about God's love. If you'll remember a couple weeks ago when the song was introduced, Steadfast, we've been singing over these last few weeks, we read Psalm 136 together. You remember that? You remember the refrain of that? I mean, how could you forget it, right? Did you forget it? His love endures forever. I mean, it almost becomes somewhat comical, doesn't it? How many times we'd say it over and over. It's almost like God really wants us to get that his love endures forever, isn't it? How often do we hear something and forget it so quickly and we need to be reminded of it? I think about that with my children all the time. I'm like, I, I just told you that the other day and then I'm usually pretty quickly convicted and think, I bet that's how the Lord feels about me. You know, you just read that this morning and you're already forgetting about it. You just heard that from a friend who spoke, God's, who spoke the truth to you and you're already forgetting about it. That, that God's steadfast love endures forever. That that is the picture of patience. That that's the love that we've been given in Christ Jesus. And now he says this love is, to, is working out in the life of the church in patience. Let me ask you, where is there impatience? in your love for others in the life of the church. Where is it? Where's that person that just rubs you the wrong way? They always seem to have that ill-timed word or butt in when you're trying to talk with someone else. Where's the impatience that you have for others? How's it you can begin to ask the Lord, how can the gospel inform me to be patient with that person? That, God, you've been so patient with me. Time and time again, as I fail and and, and repent, that you forgive and you're patient with me, is that patience that God has shown you, is it overflowing from your life into the life of those around you? You know, it's the person that that when you, you get the text message or the email, you're tempted to grumble before you even read it. Here we go again. It's those things. The next thing he says is that that love is patient and and love is kind. When we think about kindness, we think about sympathy, forbearing, think about somebody who's gentle, 
who's helpful. Because you can try to help someone and not be gentle, right? That's, that's not kind. You, you ever done that? I have. And um, too many times. So, so we're talking about gentleness with it. Sympathy and empathy that, that, that drives it. And, and what's interesting is as Paul presses forward and he tells us what love is not, I think it fills out more for us what kindness is by telling us what, what love is not. So, so to be kind is to not be envious or boastful with others. So let's think about envy first. Let's think about envy first. The envy is a desire for something that someone else has, but we don't. And, and we think that if we have it, we'll be fulfilled and we'll be happy. To envy is, is synonymous to some extent with coveting, right? Remember the last commandment there, Galatians, I mean Galatians, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servants, livestock, anything. It's the only commandment that, that really addresses the internal instead of the external. And it shows us by addressing the internal that, that all of them are internal, not just external. But, but what is envy? Well, well, envy is if I had X, whatever that is, I'd be happy. My life would be better, complete, fulfilled. Yet envy begins to twist things a little bit more. And not only do you wish you had X, but you also wish other people didn't have it. It's where you begin, begin to twist it so much that, that you want it so much that you hate that somebody else does have it. Yet envy makes us think, I do deserve it, and they don't deserve it. So here's how it works out in the life of the church. If you hear of another's good news and you respond with, must be nice, there's a chance that you're envious of something going on in their life. That must be nice. If you hear of another's good news in the church and you respond with, seriously, more good is coming their way? Like, really? What about me, God? Then it's an indication that there's some envy in your heart. Because see, what we're called to do when we hear of the good news coming to others is we're called to rejoice with them. But instead of rejoicing with them, we're envious of them. And Paul's saying here clearly that the envy does not belong in the church. That it's the opposite of love. Because his love does not envy. The next thing he says that love does not do is it does not boast. See, if we're envious, when we do get something we want, we will absolutely boast about it. <laughs> when we finally get it, we'll want everybody else to know about it. And we'll be tempted to boast about it. We're looking for fulfillment and things. And we think part of that fulfillment comes from receiving the vain glory that we would get by boasting about it. That's part of why we want it. That's part of why we think we'll be fulfilled by it. We want others to recognize and to notice that we have it. Boasting is self-promotion. That's what it is. I'm going to promote self. So, so we have these unlimited opportunities to boast today. Right? Social media has made it really easy to boast today. Social media can create this illusion in, uh, of life that we have the perfect life, can it? It really can. Most people, not all people, I know, most people only put the highlights on social media. So actually social media is a, a good platform to boast and it's actually another really good platform to produce envy in other people. Because we can, we can give the illusion that everything is good. We only put the good moments. One of my favorite family pictures ever is July four years ago, or, th or five. And it's the picture right before the perfect picture. You know what I'm saying? It's the picture where one of the kids is doing this. Ah, I won't say which one. And all the other kids are looking and just dying laughing at, at that kid. Right? And then finally, like two shots later, everybody gets it together and we get the, the picture that we were aiming for. But see, on social media, we don't usually put that picture. We don't put the picture of, of mom and dad yelling at everybody, like, if you don't smile, you're going to be grounded for a month, all right? I'm just trying to get one picture. We, we, don't, we don't put all that up. We just put the picture that looks like, 
Oh, man, it's the perfect family, and everybody just loves each other so well, right? Then talking about the fact that during that picnic, somebody else got eaten alive by ants, and somebody else got stung by a wasp, and, you know, there was crying and yelling and all that going on. So social media creates this, this atmosphere where we can make it look like we've got it all together and post the highlights, and it creates envy in others, and it gives a platform for us to boast and to promote self. Boasting is a proclamation. And what you proclaim, you're telling people, this is what the good life is all about. Right here. This is what it's about. So here's some questions to ask when we're thinking about, am am I falling into this trap of boasting? Let me give you some questions you can ask. You can ask this question, why am I telling the news that I'm telling? Just ask, like, why why am I doing this right now? Why am I telling this? Am I seeking praise, greatness, attention for myself? Am I soliciting that praise, greatness, just the attention? Do I just like the string of comments that follows under? Am I actually wanting to tempt other people to envy because I'm tired of being the only one who's envious? Are my actions boastful? And, and here's what I want us to see. The envy and boasting, they blind us to others, right? Envy blinds us to the difficulties of others. When we're envious of someone else, we're tempted to think that they've got the perfect life. We want to idealize their life. Well, it must be nice, right, to be an empty nester, to not have any, to not have any kids at home and, and to have a little bit more income to be able to take those trips, Of course, we ignore the fact that they're still trying to launch young kids out into the world, right? They're getting asked to babysit all the time, the grandkids. uh, Their kids have financial needs, and they've got aging parents who are in the nursing home and who are are, uh, nearing the end of life and demand more attention. You see what I'm saying? We, We love to look at someone else and idealize their life and ignore the fact that they would have any difficulty, and we want to think that they've got it all together and got it made, and it's perfect, and it must be nice to live at that stage of life. So envy blinds us to others. We just think, if I could just have that. And we're absolutely blind to what other things might come with that, what difficulties might come with it. Boasting means that we're self-absorbed and we want vain glory, therefore we're only thinking of us and we're not thinking about how our boasting's affecting others. Now notice where Paul goes next. I'm not, by the way, let's just, let me go ahead and let you breathe easy. We're not going through all these this morning. That's why we're doing two parts, all right? Let's do two more. Let's do arrogant and rude. Notice where he goes next. He goes to, to arrogance. He says, so, so, so love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast, and it is not arrogant. And arrogance is rooted in pride. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 5, that there was this pride there that like, well, look, man, we can even indulge in this sin. That, that was the attitude of the church at Corinth. That was definitely the attitude of the person engaged in the sin, and the rest of the church was overlooking it at least. And there was this arrogance there that the church was grossly misunderstanding grace because they thought grace would allow them to, to engage in sin. And so it led them to an arrogance about sin. And this arrogance was going to poison the whole church. That's what Paul says. He's like, this leaven's going to work its way through the whole lump and it's going to, uh, to kill the whole church. It's like a cancer working through the body. Next, this pride and arrogance, another way that it hinders the life of the church is that pride prevents us from sharing with others the gifts that have been given to us for the common good. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. He says, these gifts have been given for the common good. And when we have pride, when we have this arrogance, we don't want to use our gifts for the good of others. We want to use them for the the good of us and for the vainglory that we can receive. And so we're thinking about us and we're not thinking about serving others with our gifts. That this pride causes us also to think that we don't need the body. This pride works its way in, and we think, you know what, that's fine, you know, but I don't really need what you guys need. Right? I don't need what everybody else. I don't. I don't I, prayer requests. I don't need accountability. I don't. I don't need these things. I, I'm good. This is what Paul's addressing there in 1 Corinthians 12, 21. Just back up and look at verse 21 in chapter 12. 
He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Just think about that. Well, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, right? It's like the eyeball's like, I'm all good. I can just roll around by myself. I don't need the rest of the body. The head's like, I, I, we don't need feet. I mean, listen, if you walk into a room and you see a severed body part, what do you think? It's not good, is it? I mean, that's not a good thing. Like, this belongs to the rest of this. Like, we don't want to see any of it separated. And Paul's addressing that. He's like, hey, church, this is ridiculous. You're, you're saying, like, you don't have need of one another. It's like, you want to separate yourself out. And here's what you got to understand. Not only are you separating yourself out, but you're handicapping the rest of the body while you're doing it. Because now we're, we're, we're lacking an eye or a hand or a leg. So this, this arrogance, this pride is leading you to say, I don't need you. And you're being selfish because you're saying, I'm not going to help the rest of you. And, and, and listen to what Ed Welch says. <clears throat> he says that within the church, we're all needy and needed. Both. If you hang around with me for long, I like simple, and I can remember that. You'll hear me say that a lot. <clears throat> and you can say it back to me a lot, because I need to be reminded of it all the time. But we're all needy and needed. And so arrogance will, will prevent you from seeing that you are needy and it will lead you to think that you're only needed. There's even those who like, like to feel needed, but I don't need anybody else. And what happens when you do that, right? When you, when you like to see that, that you're needed, but you don't want to recognize that you're needy, this arrogance leads to the death of Christian liberty in the church. <laughs> the way it does that is, you think you got it all figured out? And you forgot that Paul said make disciples of Christ and not of you, and you think that everybody should look like you. So everybody should make the same political decisions you make, make the same schooling decisions you make, the same entertainment decisions you make, the same financial decisions you make. See, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ, he never thought that everybody should become apostolic, itinerant missionaries who were tent makers on the side. That's not what he thought at all. He didn't think everybody should be just like him. He meant these gospel principles that guide and shape my life. I want them to guide and shape your life as well. And you're to follow Christ. And then last, Paul says that love is not rude. Now, I know that my ministry experience is limited. But I think rudeness is one of the primary causes of minor hurts and offenses in the church, if not the leading cause. What is rudeness? Being rude just means you're not thoughtful. It just means you're just not thoughtful of others, right? If one of our kids was the belch really loud at the table, we'd be like, that's rude, don't do that. What do we mean? Like, think about the rest of us. We don't want to be caught up in that, you know? So, uh, you know, think about everybody, right? That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. I won't press any further into that, but, but that's, that's exactly what we mean. And this is what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. This is what we see, right? They're just being rude. They're not thinking about their, the poorer members who can't get there when they can get there, and they're not waiting on them. They're just being rude. They're not being thoughtful. They're being thoughtless. They're caught up in self. See how arrogance can drive this? Drive this rudeness, this pride? So what's the result of not being mindful of others? Well, we do stupid things, right? Like this. I'm, I find myself complaining about my job to somebody who just lost their job because I'm being completely thoughtless. You ever done anything like that? Like, oh my goodness, I forgot who I was talking to. Let me, give you, let me give you an easy example, and then we'll press into more of these. A couple years ago, I had a friend who was talking, two friends. We were sitting there talking, the three of us, and one of them was talking about a car. He's like, I hate such and such cars. And like, when he said, I'm like, that's exactly what friend number two drives, you know? He's like there, and he's going on about why he doesn't like it. And in the, I mean, it's like nails across the chalkboard, the whole conversation. I'm like, please stop, please stop, please stop. You know, I don't think it ever even dawned on him. It was just completely rude. It was completely thoughtless. He wasn't thinking about, you know, what. So just, there's one real quick help. Before you talk about, you know, houses that you don't like and cars you don't like, you might want to think about what everybody drives is standing around you. But anyway, so 
So, but let's press further. It's more serious than that. I complain about a job to the person who doesn't have a job. I complain about my kids to the person who can't have children. Or I only let my kids dominate the conversation around people maybe who have hurt over those things. I boast about my vacation to the person who can't even afford to take one. The problem with rudeness is that it is is self-absorption. That it's us not being mindful of others. I'm only thinking of me in that conversation. I'm not thinking of them. I'm not taking the time to think about, if I say this, what are the effects of that, and how does this work out in this life? I'm not taking the time to think about, if I ask this person of this, how is that going to affect the rest of their week, right? See, what's going on in the church when when love reigns is that no one is planting their feet stagnant and saying, all right, now everybody else just kind of revolve around me. That's a problem. But when everyone is putting the interests of others first and nobody's feet are planted, it's a beautiful thing. Because I'm looking out for you, but even in my looking out for you, you're looking out for me. And you're like, no, Matt, I know your schedule. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do that right now or vice versa. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, I, I'd love to help, but I, we were talking last week, and you're talking about how busy your week is. And the most loving thing you can do is just go home, go to the backyard, and play with your kids. You don't need to come help me with this project in my house. And on and on we can go. Do you see how this works? Because nobody's just planting their feet. And saying, everybody just revolve around me. So so here's a question for you. Are your feet currently planted right now? And if you're not being mindful of the people who are sitting around you in this room, a good chance is at least one of them is. You know what I'm saying? And so as we think about this this rudeness, rudeness isn't only, only... stem from being boastful and arrogant. It also stems from envy. Right? All these things make us self-absorbed. So when we're envious, we're tempted to say, how dare you rejoice at what's going on in your life because I don't have it. Do you, do you, do you see this? Because it doesn't mean that, that you can't rejoice in good because someone else may not have that. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Just go back to verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. See, so it's, it's me not just saying, let me just plant my feet. and Everybody better be ultra sensitive of everything that's going on in my life. It's me saying, you know what? I lament that I don't have that, but I want to rejoice because you do have that. It really gives light to what Paul says about sorrowful yet always rejoicing. When the gospel comes to bear in our lives, what we realize is that there's not going to be heaven here on earth. So everything has an occasion for lament, even in the joys. Right? We're called to do this. This is what, this is what we're called to do. So love is to mark the life of the church. We'll come back next week and we'll, we'll look at the rest of this. It doesn't insist on its own way and it's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. Brothers and sisters, this, this is what Jesus means when he says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Do you see how markedly different this is than the way the world does things? Do you see how this this absolutely can be a beautiful illustration to this great good news that we proclaim? Do you see how this can be a a haven for those in the world to say, yeah, you know what, That's, that's what I long to be a part of. How do I get in on that? You just recognize your need and look to Christ. This love is to to mark our lives, and, and Christian, if you're not convinced yet, Let's look at the very next verse of 1 John 4. We read verse 10. But verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. 
And in fact, one verse, one chapter prior to that, listen to what he says. In fact, this is evidence that we are in Christ. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. This is a serious theme in Scripture. And this morning, if we just hear this and turn deaf ear to it, we ought to be sobered by that attitude. Because our Lord meant it when he said, they'll know this, that you're mine by your love for one another. So as I said earlier, we can't generate it. We can't generate this love, but please hear this. I do believe we can cultivate this love. Do you see the difference? We can't generate it. It doesn't spring from us, but, but by God's grace, as he pours this love out to us in Christ Jesus, we can cultivate this love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first one. 1 Corinthians 14, look up at 14, look at 1a as he finishes this argument. Pursue love. He's telling you, cultivate it. Pursue it. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, I'll bring you the verses next week, and he, he commends their love, and then he calls them to grow and to abound and to overflow in that love. He says, yes, that love is present, but cultivate it that it would abound and overflow in your life. So we don't generate it, but we can see it cultivated by God's grace as we continue to delight in Christ and in the gospel and see by God's grace and the work of the Spirit this fruit in our lives as we seek even this week to say, am I being patient and kind? Am I being envious, boastful, arrogant? Am I just being rude right now? And working hard by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit to fight and to mortify those sins. And then let me close with this, two warnings. Two warnings. This is quick. Number one, beware of being convicted for other people right now. Beware of listening to this sermon for someone else right now. You know what I'm saying? There's a subtle temptation that sneaks in. It's like, man, I really wish so-and-so was here to hear this. And the Spirit's like, I wish you'd stop thinking about them and you'd hear it yourself. You, You know what I mean? Beware of that temptation to hear for others. Number two, beware of your ideals on how all this should look. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this excellent quote about community, and he says that people's ideal of community will kill true community every time. Right? They think it should look just like this, and their thoughts of exactly how it should look will actually kill the real thing. Brothers and sisters, this love is going to manifest and work out in a lot of different ways in the life of the church. So beware of you thinking in your arrogance that you know exactly how it ought to look and work out. Because you will then cease to be loving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us and your love. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But you've given it to us. Lord, we confess right now that we want to see this love manifest and work out in our lives, in the life of the church, more and more. So give us grace that it would. Press on our hearts even now. The areas where maybe we need repentance and correction. Press on our hearts the things that have encouraged us, that they would continue to, to encourage and spur us on to love and good works. Use our testimony that you produce in us by your word and the power of the Spirit and your grace to make your name great in this community and across the globe. Let it all be for Christ's sake, for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.